and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you now in the middle of March, and asking the question, how's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on this program as we were away last week. We know you missed us. We're sorry about it. Just know we missed you too. We had good reasons to not be with you, but those reasons... Reasons have cleared up, and now we're back with you, and the world is all right and proper once again. Everything's fine. There's nothing bad going on in the world as uh, our reunion with uh, you, or reunion of uh, program and listener, has now just led to uh, worldwide harmony. Yeah, I mean, that's not overselling it at all, but... No. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> This week, I'm Dennis, the man who's looking forward to starting smoking again. Ooh, you, you've tried the vaping thing, and uh, now you're off that and just getting back into the hardcore smoking? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> the various harder drugs like, uh, you know, uh, uh, freebasing cocaine and, uh, you know, uh, amongst other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, you, you gave that a go. You uh, had your dalliance with those, and, uh, you know, I mean, you live to tell the tale, but... Uh, you know, not for you. Is that the uh, is that the takeaway from it? Oh no, that's what I am going to start smoking. Oh, again. okay, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. Though, just to clarify, just so this is not some sort of crazy admission of anything that you know, because there, there's people that take things too literally. No, this was joking. We are joking. That's not a thing. What I'm talking about smoking again is smoking meats in my smoker. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I believe you have spoke, spoken, not spoken. You have spoken in the past on this program about, uh, the fact that you have a smoker and you have, uh, I think it was last summer was the f- first time you formally, uh, really began the, in, down the road of, uh, meat smoking. Uh, y- was, was it last, it last summer? Sum- year before? I think it was last summer. It, it was, e- well, time is a, you know, a mysterious thing and I don't remember, but, uh, yeah, let's just say it was last summer. Sure. <laughs> Um, and yeah, that's, uh, or it might've been two summers ago. I mean, as I've said before in this program, time is a flat circle, uh, indistinguishable when you look at it from the right angle. So, uh, possible. I'm going to allow that as a possibility. Yeah. But anyways, um, what seems to happen? Well, the reason why I'm looking forward to starting and why, you know, I had to stop it all was because, you know, in the brutal cold winters that we get here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, the smoker that I own seems to have some sort of safeguard in place um, that lets you that prevents you from turning it on when it's when it re- reaches below a certain temperature. I guess it must just be because of some food safety thing, or maybe it just can't guarantee that it'll be able to heat up to whatever temperature. Fair enough, whatever. You know, they're effectively just like metal boxes with elements inside them at a certain point. Um, that has like some part that lets you put wood in and the wood smokes off with the element and stuff. And yeah, that's, that that's what the type of smoker I have is. It's basically, it looks like a little mini fridge, but you know, it does the opposite thing of a mini fridge. <laughs> um, but yeah, so during our cold winters, uh, I cannot use it because it's, you know, I can't turn it on because it's too cold, which, you know, also don't really want to be, you know, messing around with, Grabbing stuff from outside when it's that cold anyways, so fair enough. But now that we're enter- exiting that cold, crazy season, getting into spring, summer, fall, you know, the rest of the rest of the year, thankfully. Um, yeah, that's starting up again and I couldn't be happier. So do you already have your, uh, your meat plan laid out for you? What, uh, what's up on the docket of what you first want to tackle? 
Yeah, so I'm going to do some chicken wings. It seems like it's a pretty good uh, first way to, or a not a first way, a, a first um, a first foray back into smoking again. And I also preemptively picked up, you know, a a bit of a brisket. So I'll be doing that as well. So very, I, I, very I have nice. a couple of couple of things ready. Uh, yeah. Very nice. It all sounds, uh, very tasty. Do you, do you have a, a wood preference at this point yet? Or are you still very new and you're still just kind of dabbling here and there and seeing what, uh, which wood speaks to you the most? Yeah, I'm, I'm still mostly in that phase. Like I do like maple, but I did pick up a bunch of hickory that I want to try because I've heard good things about hickory as well. And, uh, yeah. Well, excellent. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's going to happen to, uh, Probably most males after a certain age, you uh, you get into meat smoking. Yeah, the the joke I think I saw that someone kind of brought a meme to my attention a few weeks ago was either you know once once men you know get beyond the age of thirty five, they either really get into smoking meats or they get really into World War Two history, <laughs> which <laughs> you know it's like okay, I'm I'm not going to. I guess admit on that Facebook post that, you know, I did listen to and greatly enjoy all of hardcore history, uh, all the episodes about world war two. So that's, uh, let's not go down that path because I don't <laughs> like living as too much of a stereotype, but, uh, yeah, let's just say that meme spoke to me. Uh, it did. And, uh, I, I'm glad that you feel comfortable, uh, admitting at least some parts of those, uh, here on this program and to all our listeners that this is an inviting enough environment for you to, uh, admit your truths. <laughs> that you've reached yes. that point in age where, uh, uh, you know, World War II history and meat smoking are both speaking to you. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes. Yes. A man's got to have hobbies and, uh, they just so happen to, uh, be very commonplace amongst, uh, other men of similar ages. So, yep. <laughs> Yes. How's it feel to be a stereotype? Um, not really good, but you know, that's, uh, <laughs> there's not really anything I can do about it, so, <laughs> so I'll just leave it at that, I guess. Well, you've, uh, you've made your investment in the smoker and the meats already, so you can't give that up. That'd be a waste. No, I mean, plus, if liking to smoke meat and liking to eat smoked meat is a, uh, stereotype, I guess I can live with that one. Well, it's a very tasty stereotype, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so good on you, and uh, I look forward to hearing your progress in the world of smoking as you uh, pick up this hobby once again through the summertime. And uh, I'm sure, as uh, you've told yourself before, you can quit any time, right? You know, it's, <laughs> this is just just what you're doing right now, but it's fine. You can, you can totally quit whenever you want. I don't know if I can. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's a bit of a bigger issue, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll have to, uh, of course, uh, see if we can hook you up with some form of hypnotherapy. And uh... well, well let, let's—I don't know if I need to either. That's the other thing. <laughs> fair, fair point. <laughs> But uh, I look forward to possibly, as the the weeks and uh, months go on, to possibly uh, uh, trying and sampling out some of your smoked meat offerings as well. Yeah, I mean, provided that our restrictions let up again. I mean, the the latest you – know, there there are some places in the world where people are starting to get their, uh, their COVID shots and whatnot. And uh, we have not been that lucky yet <laughs> because I guess things are kind of moving at a bit of a snail's pace here in Manitoba. 
Um, but things are starting to get unclogged. And I guess like, from what I understand, it should be, you know, towards the middle of the summer I, that maybe we should be able to, you know, start being in a situation where we can safely all have gatherings again, which will be good. Indeed. Fingers crossed for that to happen. And, uh, uh, you can see how ridiculously long my hair has become. <laughs> yes. As, uh, I've not grown a COVID beard. I've, I've grown COVID hair and it's, uh, it's majestic. Yes. I am, uh, I'm growing it out for my, uh, next, uh, next, uh, career pursuit as the aftershot in, uh, various many shampoo commercials. <laughs> shampoo commercials or like, you know, that, uh, some, some, what do they call it? Like, you know, you and I could be the before and after shots of like the hair loss treatment. Oh yes, yes, hair restoration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, it's like those are different guys. This this yeah. ad's over. <laughs> precisely, precisely that. So, yep, uh, looking forward to that. And uh, ooh, maybe eventually I'll uh, get the chance to give you your Christmas presents too. <laughs> yes, one day. <laughs> oh man, they're all wrapped up, ready to go. <laughs> you know, if this continues on long enough, maybe they become your birthday presents too. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll see. <laughs> There's enough going on there. It's entirely possible. So we'll see. But uh, that is all for a future time. We can only deal with the here and now as we understand things, or at least attempt to understand things, as I think that is a nice way to transition into our ludicrous leadoffs this week. We have two items, both of them dealing with the new hotness, uh, the new hotness trend in finance, the world of business and whatnot, uh, uh, centering around crypto and cryptocurrencies. Yeah, for whatever reason, still crypto really persists. So, you know, because of the success of Bitcoin and I guess now to a lesser extent, but still worth mentioning uh, extent Ethereum, you know, every, and showing how easy it is to basically spin up a new cryptocurrency, everyone and their dog has one. Seriously, look on any of the crypto markets and there's like literally thousands of cryptocurrencies out there that are available for, you know, purchase for, mining for, you know, using frivolously in the case of Dogecoin and stuff like that. Uh, I think I saw even Terry Crews had uh, developed and launched his own crypto coin. Yeah. So it's not, it's not anything, you know, particularly, you know, uh, unique to have a crypto coin available, but yeah. Damn it. It's not impressive. Yeah, it's not impressive. Like, damn it if not everyone in their dog literally has one. Like I said, like, there's tons and tons of them out there. So, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, anyways, um, crypto, it, it, there's lots of them out there, but, um, would anyone, would any legitimate business look at making their own cryptocurrency and think, yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to make us look like a legitimate business? Probably not, which no. is why this is in the ludicrous leadoff territory. So we have, I think it was last year or maybe the year before. Again, I circle back to this fact that time is a flat circle, but Atari, or at least the dead skin mask wearing husk that now calls itself Atari, uh, at a previous point announced that they were going to get into the cryptocurrency game with their own, well, their own crypto, their own cryptocurrency, Atari coin or whatever you wish to call it. 
but the Atari crypto is what they were going to launch. So I guess this is what you do when you're a company that is uh, really directionless and rudderless and no new products to offer and are known for and relying entirely for your, I guess, profit base to capitalize on your old games and still trying to be hip and cool with all the kids, even though you're not hip and cool with all the kids. So in that <laughs> vein of the dead skin mask wearing husk now calling itself Atari, trying to be hip and cool with all the kids, uh, they announced a couple of weeks ago, did Atari, uh, they announced a new partnership between themselves and Decentral Games to launch a blockchain casino that is built entirely around Atari-themed games. <laughs> oh, good. Because, of course, this is what you do. This is, uh, I'm going to say, when they were throwing crap at a wall to see what idea to pursue next, uh, those are the three squares of where the crap hit on the wall. Blockchain and casino. Oh, and a, it's an Ethereum blockchain casino, so that's that's one of the, the other squares where the crap landed. Yeah. So this is, again, a partnership with Decentral Games. Uh, it is going to, I believe, launch, uh, if it hasn't launched already, the Atari Casino to feature nostalgia-themed games. Think of the old Atari titles from the 80s that were really popular for the first heyday of video gaming for its eventual collapse. Those titles. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Atari was developing their own cryptocurrency at some point, correct? Uh, correct. I... Don't know if it launched. It wouldn't surprise me if it hadn't launched, given that Atari, or I should say, and clarify, the dead skin mask wearing husk that currently calls itself Atari has a knack for announcing things, but not really following through. I cite you the example of the Atari VCS. Yeah, though I I think at some part of this, there the this new Atari token, which I think is ATRI, which is what they were calling it is going to be involved. Cause from what I understand as a part of this whole casino thing, uh, like they, they say that there's going to be some Atari special game where you can win it based on skill. And like you can earn DG, which is the central games token by playing some games. And then you could also win this special Atari token, ATRI by playing other games. It, it's so not only is it sketchy sounding, even their, their, Plans don't seem super clear for what, you know, the, the reason why you would go to this casino are. Like. I'm, I'm sure they're trying, simply trying to cash in on the appeal of, uh, the Atari, you know, the old Atari properties. Because if you notice too, with the rise in, uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchains, uh, call me crazy, but I've noticed a, uh, uh, an increase in the number of online casinos that are out there advertising to try and get your attention and, and attract users to come spend their monies on whatever site. Yeah. So that's one of the things about, you know, the blockchain that, you know, yeah, yeah. In theory, they're like, for a lot of people, it seems like it's this great thing where it's like, oh, government doesn't, you know, get to have a say in how things are regulated and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But the downside of all this is like, you know, people with gambling problems and stuff can maybe now be totally screwed in like new ways that can't be touched by the government. Uh, maybe, uh, and basically be able to fly entirely under the radar of things. Yeah. Which, you know, her, I mean, hooray for capitalism and all that stuff, but, uh, yeah. 
So, uh, regardless, it sounds like this, uh, this Atari virtual crypto casino is still going to go ahead. Uh, it is apparently going to be called Vegas City and, uh, exist as a gaming district in Decentraland, which is Decentral Games' online metaverse, or I guess virtual space, which I think a couple years ago probably we would have called, you know, a version of Second Life. Yeah. So, but essentially, I believe metaverse is now the term for something like a second life where users have their avatar, they go and interact with other people and whatnot. So, hey, second life was just ahead of the game. That's all. I mean, it kind of was, though. I mean, we, we joke, but second life was a thing for years and years and years. So, yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah. So Second Life was a thing for years, uh, but I believe shut down several years ago before the new uptake in metaverses, followed by the uptake in crypto and bitcoins and cryptocurrencies and crypto casinos. Uh, Bloomberg, actually Bloomberg Business, uh, citing reports from both Atari and Decentral Games saying that uh, they expect or this venture is expected to generate $150 million in bets in this current calendar year, 2021, and then $400 million in bets over the next two years, which hmm. that's a lot of money and call me crazy, but I'm going to be pessimistic about that. Yeah. Call me crazy. I have no reason other than my own general cynicism about the dead skin mask wearing husk that now calls itself Atari. Though, I don't know. I mean, l- let's, let's also remember here. It doesn't look like Atari is the main driver of all of this. It looks more like Decentral Games is the driver and they're using the Atari name maybe to try to get maybe a little bit more, you know, eyes on this casino of theirs. So maybe it's, maybe these projections are done by more on the Decentral Games of things, side of things than the Atari side of things. So maybe they are to be trusted. True. This does reek of a licensing deal and Atari has you know, name recognition for a lot of their old game properties that are going to help this uh, version or this attempt at an online casino stand out compared to all the rest that have, you know, generic game X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So I can certainly see that, but uh, will that be enough to attract users and attract people? Who knows? Uh, will this distract Atari at all from continuing work on eventually releasing the VCS? Maybe. Uh, is this all just a, a, a setup to prepare Atari for uh, the future day when they open up the Atari Hotel and possibly also uh, Atari Casino somewhere in Vegas? Because, yes, Atari was planning to do Atari-themed hotels uh, across the United States, whether or not that still goes forward in light of the COVID pandemic uh, destruction of the entertainment and hospitality industry. <laughs> remains to be seen because it's an utter destruction of the hotel, the entertainment and hospitality industry. Let's be clear. Yeah, very much so. Like certain parts of the world, like Vegas, I'm sure will come, you know, come through and be okay in the end because people will always want to go to Vegas. Other parts of the world, eh, maybe not as much and maybe not so well. So, but hey, if you can't uh, get to Vegas to do your online gambling, then why not do it through a uh, crypto casino? Yeah. Which, when I read that headline initially, uh, that Atari was partnering to launch a blockchain-based crypto currency or crypto casino, I 
read that and thought, well, this is just very much a Mad Libs type headline. <laughs> it's, I don't know, call me crazy, but that's what it feels like Atari is doing these days. Just literally throwing crap at a wall and seeing what sticks and what are people into now? Well, let's go there and, you know, do something in that vein. So sure. Why not? Why not? I think I'm kind of done with trying to understand whatever Atari uh, does as a company. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not really, uh, yeah, they're, well, at this point, they're just a brand. I wouldn't say they're a company. There, I said it. Yeah, well, they're a company that exists to license their brand. That, And that's it. That's all they do. So, yep, the, the old Atari, again, long since dead, and uh, we get crazy things like this, like an Atari crypto casino. Sure, sure, why not? Now, that sounds kind of crazy, but then we have this next ludicrous lead-off, also to deal with uh, things in the blockchain and the new hotness of uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs for short. And perhaps you heard this story, perhaps you didn't, but the uh, story from, I believe, a week ago, two weeks ago, of the piece of digital art that sold for a crazy $69.3 million. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't actually hear about it until today when you brought it to my attention, but... Uh, well, uh, yeah. I guess that's because you uh, don't... Uh, don't live in uh, or exist in the art collecting circles. So uh, if you did, you would have uh, known this already when the auction was completed uh, a couple of weeks ago at Christie's Auction House. All of it for a JPEG file made by Mike Winkleman, who is known as the digital artist Beeple. And his piece of work, which is a digital collage entitled Every Days, The First 5,000 Days, uh, is now the record holder for most expensive ever non-fungible token. And it sold for $69.3 million. And apparently in the last several minutes, the bidding just went absolute bananas. Uh, I believe in the last several minutes. Yeah. So the, the uptake in interest of this, according to an article from Adele Anchors of IGN, uh, who puts it uh, better than I could in this moment. The uptake in interest ultimately pushed the price up from under $30 million to over $60 million in the two-minute extension that was granted by Christie's Auction House. Uh, as a result, Beeple's digital asset became the third most expensive piece of artwork to be sold by a living artist ever at auction. <laughs> yeah, you know, you have like Da Vinci, you have, um, you know, Picasso, you have... You know, Monet, you have things like that. Then you have Beeple. The Renoir for a modern time. Yeah. I mean, it's not even Banksy. I mean, Banksy is already kind of like a a silly name compared to like all these other people. But at least Banksy made tangible things that, I mean, I don't want to sound too much like an old man yelling at the cloud. But like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, like... Good God. So the listing for this digital piece of art, uh, started, uh, it was a two week auction and the list price started at $100. And in the final hour, there was more than 180 bids that helped drive up the price again from under $30 million to over $60 million. So the price for this item went up $30 million in a span of several minutes. Yeah. Can I just throw this question out there? Who the hell has this kind of money? 
to spend almost $70 million on a piece of digital art. Yeah, I... I uh... On a JPEG file, mind you. Yep, it's uh, it's a thing. Now, it's a collage that is a, uh, a collection of images that uh, Beeple has done uh, and posted on online each day since uh, the year 2007. And as a result, there's over 5,000 individual images from 5,000 different days, hence the name of this particular piece. Uh, Beeple said in a statement following the uh, the ridiculous uh, auction that this was, he said, or they said, quote, artists have been using hardware and software to create artwork and distribute it on the internet for the last 20 plus years, but there was never a real way to truly own and collect it. I believe we are witnessing the beginning of the next chapter in art history, digital art. I mean, it's, it is cool. Like it, it is an interesting idea and I can't say that I disagree that, you know, Anytime you get a chance to let artists make more money, like when you think about artists through history, like the digital revolution kind of did really debase all art. It made all art basically feel almost worthless, like across the board. Music was devastated, like basically a lot of like visual art was reduced to essentially just like you know, gig economy type nonsense. So like as a musician that like kind of maybe was in a position, you know, started being in bands and stuff, you know, right at the start of when the music industry was kind of at the end of its, you know, traditional life, you know, kind of just missed the boat by like maybe within five years, I would say like, not that I'm saying that I'm, I was ever in a band that, you know, was good enough to like get a big record deal with, you know, do whatever like that. But, you know, that like I saw the end of it back then. And, you know, the same thing has been happening to people who do like art and stuff and like these commissions and stuff. And like you see like this gig economy has basically been this kind of like this scourge of all artists existence where like people – like the joke is like, oh, well, you know, you, we'll, we'll pay you an exposure and like trying to lowball artists and being like, oh, you're basically just doing like Photoshop work or you're just drawing a couple of pictures. Come on. But like, if you look at the art of like days gone by, like is Picasso really all that great compared to some digital artists that, you know, you've probably seen? No, like I, I can point to like some digital art that I've seen that is like, I would say, oh, this is like incredible art. Like it looks really amazing compared to some of this quote unquote classic art, but because it's done digitally, there's this weird idea in people's heads where it's like, Oh, well, anyone could do that. It's like, but yeah, like anyone could, but not everyone is and not everyone could. <laughs> Let's just say that, you know, not everyone could. So my, my TLDR here is like, I'm, I'm all for artists figuring out new ways of trying to be paid what they hopefully are worth. Like, Anytime you can make art worth something again, I'm glad. But, you know, like, it is weird. <laughs> it's a very strange thing. And, you know, it's going to be, like, hard for people who are of a certain age and older just to kind of, like, maybe, rec like, not reconcile, but, like, basically wrap their head around this. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly can see that. Uh, and... This feels like one of those uh, harsh shifts uh, in, I guess, our society and culture and whatnot that 
we have arrived at suddenly too. Yeah. That, oh, this is how we are conducting things now. Art is now for digital images or, you know, the, the high value art that collectors are seeking and paying ridiculous prices for in this specific case, uh, is digital files, JPEGs that is in the form of blockchain or encoded in blockchains and exists as non-fungible tokens. Oh, okay. When did this happen? I only heard of those terms, you know, on the periphery, but we're there and this is now taken hold that Christie's auction house is doing it and doing an auction for. Oh, okay. Sure. I, I guess that's what we're going with now. Okay. Yeah. And it's, there's a certain element of bewilderment, at least on my part, because I'm still sitting here as someone who doesn't fully understand the, you know, the concept of blockchains and non-fungible tokens. I don't yeah, get I, it. I don't get it either. <laughs> there, there's definitely some learning to be done, but, uh, yeah. So, so I'm curious after all was said and done and one person had the high bid at the end of this auction for $69.3 million for this digital art file or digital image file, how exactly was this being delivered to the successful bidder? Is it basically a USB drive? Is it an email just with a a code and string of, uh, you know, letters and numbers or? I mean, call me, you know, in the old days when you paid $69 million for a piece of art, you got the piece of art and it was arrangements were made to have it delivered to wherever the hell you wanted. Yeah. And there were, I mean, though I was going to say, and there were ways to verify its authenticity, but arguably it's way easier to verify the authenticity of this art now because you can do things with like, um, like there's a specific digital signature that's now on record of what this art is and like for you to own it, but I guess then it gets tricky of like, do you own the copy? But I guess that's where, do you own a copy of it? But then I guess that's where the blockchain comes in where it's like you verify it through all of the entire blockchain. Basically it's super complicated. And you know, even me, like someone who is in the field of computer science, I have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around this stuff too. So I can only imagine how, you know, non-computer science people are kind of handling some of this stuff now. And it just basically must seem like, uh, well, I'm going to trust the smart people and that they know what they're talking about. I hope, I hope my money is going in the right place. So. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of just wowed and awed and uh, mystified by all of this, but $69.3 million for a, uh, uh, a file, an image file. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are there now. That is the uh, digital future come to digital present. Not a slow, gradual transition, but uh, a, a harsh 90-degree turn with uh, in the midst of traffic. Yeah, exactly. But uh, let's move off the ludicrous lead-offs to some things that we understand a bit better, uh, more traditional business. Uh, we have uh, several stories in the gaming business realm to uh, talk about on this particular episode. We'll start with the biggest of them, that being the formal announcement that Microsoft and ZeniMax Media are now one company. Uh, the approvals have gone through. Microsoft is now the official owner of ZeniMax, and as a result, they own studios like Bethesda, Arcane, ID Software, and more, and things like, well, Elder Scrolls, 
and the Fallout series are now under Microsoft's umbrella. So that has now officially come to pass. Uh, Phil Spencer in a blog post, Phil Spencer being the head of the Xbox division for Microsoft, he welcomed ZeniMax to the family and said uh, in a press release, and a blog post, uh, quote, now that everything is official, we can begin working together together to deliver more great games to everyone and said that the Xbox teams will work uh, together with the Bethesda teams in the, I guess, weeks ahead, months ahead, but uh, also expect to see, uh, or as a result, Bethesda games, uh, some additional Bethesda games were added to the Xbox Game Pass service. And in a separate blog post about this announcement, Bethesda's Pete Hines uh, wrote that, quote, we're not making any landmark announcements or changes right now, but did add that, quote, we'll be working on putting even more of our games into Game Pass than ever before, end quote. So Microsoft and Bethesda now all under the same umbrella. Well, Bethesda under Microsoft's umbrella, which is a very big umbrella. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so you might be wondering, you might be thinking, okay, does this mean for sure that the next Fallout game, the next Elder Scrolls game, or or the next, uh, or the, not next, but the Starfield game that we know Bethesda's working on, is that all now officially, you know, console exclusive or PC exclusive? Well, n- yes and no. Phil Spencer did uh, clear up some speculation about what would or would not be exclusive to Xbox, saying, quote, with the addition of the Bethesda creative teams, gamers should know that Xbox consoles, PC, and Game Pass will be the best place to experience new Bethesda games, including some new titles in the future that will be exclusive to Xbox and PC players. So it sounds like they are going to uh, be selective about what is exclusive to the Microsoft platforms. Yeah, but they're also probably, you know, smart enough to see you know, certain brand appeal. Like, they're not going to stop an Elder Scroll. Like, when they bought Minecraft, people kind of had this same thought of like, oh, so all this Minecraft stuff is going to be Microsoft exclusive now? No. No, Minecraft's not Microsoft exclusive at all. Microsoft simply saw that, you know, Minecraft was crazy popular and they cashed in. They they bought Minecraft. They just basically put their money towards it so that all of the money that was made with it would then go to them. Makes sense. They weren't going to rock the boat with the the trajectory of Minecraft. And likewise, I don't personally see them kind of rocking the boat too much with the trajectory of some of like the more established titles, right? Like like Doom and Wolfenstein and and you know Elder Scrolls and Fallout. These are all kind of like established like across the gaming sphere. Like everyone is sort of like gamers on every single platform are kind of probably expecting to be able to play some of these things now. And are they going to change that? Like, yeah, you could argue to be like, yeah, okay, well now if you want these games in the future, you have to buy an Xbox, but that also might just drive people away more. And do they want to do that? No, I don't think so. No, they don't. Because I think if we look at the moves that uh, the Xbox division of Microsoft has made over the past, say, two, three years, it seems like Microsoft is preparing uh, the Xbox division for a future where they are software-centric first and hardware-centric second. Yeah, which, you know, makes sense. Like, it's a bit of a rat race. Like, if you can get out of, like, the physical manufacturing game and basically reduce any operating expenses, as it were, like, manufacturing is a pretty significant operating expense, you know, it's it's just good business to, you know, get 
out of that as much as possible. Unless of course you have something that, you know, you're sitting on and you, you want to be the ones that kind of own that. Like if you're Nintendo with, you know, like when the Wii came out, like you want to be the ones that own the motion control thing. Like you want to be in charge of that. Fine. I get it. But Microsoft at this point, they don't have anything in the pipe as far as I know, that's like that. So, you know, they're, they're the connect is sort of like now relegated to the medical side of things and things like that. So it's like, well, might as well just kind of pull back and just become, you know, go back to their strengths of like, you know, we're doing software, like, like we, we can provide online infrastructure and stuff too. And if anything else, maybe they want to move towards this future of just like, okay, we'll release hardware, but it's literally just sort of like the equivalent of like what Stadia would be, or like, you know, basically like a Chromecast or something that you plug into your TV and you know, it just basically streams video and we're just sending key presses through to some server and the server sending back video in relation, you know, how game streaming works. So maybe that's really where they're going towards and maybe that sets them up better. But anyways, all this like aside, yeah, like I, I don't envision this rocking the boat too much, but for new titles that don't have any established fan base, maybe this will actually also make people kind of then come over and be like, well, fine, I guess this new Xbox exclusive thing that Bethesda and them are coming out with looks pretty cool. Fine, I'll I'll buy a I'll buy an Xbox and I guess while I'm at it, I'll pick up, you know, the A3 release of Skyrim. <laughs> Because at that point, yes, there will be an A3 release of Skyrim. Uh, I think, uh, I, or at least I would imagine budget and development cost would be a calculation for whether or not something goes, uh, multi-platform or is exclusive to, to the Microsoft sphere of, uh, of platforms. I mean, ultimately, a, you know, a g- bigger game such as an Elder Scrolls or a Doom or a Wolfenstein or something like that, uh, I think would almost have to be spread across multiple platforms to have access to multiple audiences. Uh, so that way it has a greater chance of recouping the development costs because Elder Scrolls and Fallout games, they're not cheap. No, but I, I think it's also, like I said, like a matter of brand familiarity. Like I think if you do put together something that's badass, that's new, that people are looking at and going, oh man, I want to play that no matter what. And if it's a brand new thing and there's no sort of like historical baggage attached to it, make it a console exclusive. Like at, at least like as a timed thing. Fine. Like, you know, like, like Sony still does that from time to time as well. Like Sony also has some exclusives. Like they have like Horizon Zero Dawn and things of that nature. Like those aren't going on to Xbox anytime soon, but you know, for some people that does become a console seller. So like, I'd imagine that, you know, it would depend, like, if they think it can be a console seller, it might stay as a, you know, a first-party title that they don't want to spread around. But also, if something has the baggage of, like, a Fallout or an Elder Scrolls or something like that, or if there's been, like like they said, they're not changing anything that are that's already in the pipeline, like... Like, if Todd Howard said two years ago that things are going to be on all systems, like... I don't think we're going to see, you know, the next Elder Scrolls game not available for a PlayStation or whatever. So that's probably a thing, but, and also still like, I think as gamers, like we've seen, we're kind of used to the Elder Scrolls being 
on every platform and we're used to fallout being on every platform already. So it would be weird to us at this point for it not to be, you know? Yes. There are, yes. With specifically those titles and the big titles, there are established patterns of behavior, uh, for people and for gamers that they just have come to expect to be able to get them on PC, PlayStation or, or the Xbox to have the choice and uh, not really have to worry about one being solely on one platform over the other. So if, Microsoft does want to have a future where the big Bethesda titles are only on their platforms, Game Pass, PC, you know, Xbox, console, whatever that looks like in a future. I would imagine that they'd be best served by taking a slower, more gradual approach to uh, reform patterns of behavior on the part of gamers. So uh, they start with smaller titles that are exclusive to the Xbox, uh, PC, and Game Pass, and then work their way up from there. So it's uh, slower, more gradual to bring people along more slowly so there's not a harsh 90-degree turn that no one was expecting. Yeah, exactly. So the deal is done, though. Uh, that's really really what it all matters. Uh, and if you are Todd Howard and some of the other executives at Bethesda, that's a sweet, sweet $7.5 billion payday that y'all just cashed. Yeah, I wonder exactly. If, I wonder if that was one big check or spread out over several checks. <laughs> just hopefully one big check at least so they can do the, the giant check ceremony. Oh, yeah, so like a, like a lottery winning type thing? <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, speaking of acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions, uh, I mean, it's no surprise that Microsoft would buy a development studio like Bethesda, uh, but it is kind of a surprise that Sony would buy a fighting game tournament. Yeah, kind of surprising. Um, kind of surprising that no big company has kind of also put interest into this before, but maybe more surprising that it wasn't, you know, a company more directly known with fighting games than Sony, but, uh, yeah, like maybe it's kind of surprising it wasn't SNK or Capcom or something, but yeah, Sony is now a part owner of Evo. Yeah, that was the, uh, a big surprise that came down this week. Sony has joined forces with uh, a new business venture known as RTS. This RTS is a, uh, a new, business Endeavor that has been launched by the esports division of Endeavor, who are a sports marketing company. And together they have combined to buy the Evo or the Evolution Championship Series, a.k.a. Evo, the fighting game tournament that culminates with a, a big world final in Vegas almost every year. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, not last year because COVID's, but uh, apparently they are looking at holding one uh, this year, although I believe it's going to be online only, and then they'll have an in-person event in the future once those things can happen again. But yes, no dollar figures attached to this because this was a private deal. Uh, because, well, Sony or Evo selling out doesn't really have to disclose this. So it's uh, kind of a surprise, but I mean... Well, there's the part of it that doesn't surprise me is... Now, again, I'm not super plugged into the fighting game community, but I do know a couple of people that are. And from what I understand, most of the games that people in the fighting game community play are, mo are if not, not Sony exclusive, 
have like the definitive version on Sony that people consider the one that they play the most of. Like I know like there's like uh like Guilty Gear and you know a lot of the anime fighting games and stuff are mostly on Sony. Like I don't think they're even available on on Xbox. Interesting. Yeah, like I I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I know like a lot of like those like uh Guilty Gear in particular, which is a big one, uh from what I understand, like yeah, it's like the the one that like a lot of at least with the local fighting game community, from what I understand, like they do like a lot of their matches and tournaments and stuff just on PlayStation hardware. So I don't know if that's like a worldwide standard, but I know that that's from what I understand, it's kind of a local standard. So if that is more of a worldwide standard, this would make more sense. Like maybe Sony must've saw like, Oh, actually we're sort of the backbone already of this whole thing. So we might as well get in on it. Yeah. I can see that being a logical progression. Um, uh, but with the announcement that Sony is now a part owner in the uh, the Evo series, apparently it is going to still still be open to every system. With Evo business development uh, chief Mark Julio tweeting that uh, tweeting out to say that Evo is still open to all platforms, and also added that Tekken Seven is going to be running on PC and PC crossplay will be enabled for other titles. So there is that. So it's not immediately transitioning to a Sony exclusive fighting game series or PlayStation yeah. exclusive fighting game series. The co-founders of Evo, Tony and Tom Cannon are being kept on as key advisors, quote unquote, key advisors, which I'm sure is something they negotiated. Yeah. But, uh, this is Sony now. Now I don't really know what the benefit is, uh, for Sony for something like this. Yeah. I mean, like, well, I would imagine that, Evo makes money when it's put on every year. Like there are, you know, big prize pools and stuff and there's like big entry fees and stuff, things like that. And it's a big, uh, it's a big, uh, like advertiser thing, but that's on the one hand. On the other hand, are these big type events really worth going all in on for like basically a once a year thing or will they turn Evo into some sort of like series or something? Like, I, like, you'd think that a big company getting in on something like this, they're gonna try to do something more with it, right? Like they're, like, I don't know if Evo itself is like a giant moneymaker, like, I don't, it's confusing a little bit. It, it is. And even if uh, Sony was looking at this as, uh, well, Evo and the Evo series has uh, a dedicated following, dedicated audience uh, who watch, uh, so we can perhaps try and sell them and uh, on PlayStation games or products and market to them PlayStation games and products. Well, there's a good chance the people involved, the people watching or the people participating in the Evo tournaments and Evo events likely already have PlayStation consoles and PlayStation games in their catalog, in in their libraries. So this strikes me as a bit of almost preaching to the converted. Yeah. But like I said, again, like it, it doesn't seem like it's a money-making way for them for selling Sony products, but I guess, I guess it could just be a big once a year influx of extra cash. Like maybe that's the way they're looking at it. Like if there's a guaranteed amount of money that they, it make every year, like maybe they've amortized whatever they bought it for, whatever they, 
whatever the amount they put in, maybe it's a thing where they're like, okay, that'll be a good return on investment over X number of years. So maybe that's a thing. Uh, not impossible. And I'd imagine with something like this, the cost of acquisition, probably pretty low, especially when compared to the deals that Microsoft is out there making. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, I do not see, uh, uh, being anywhere close to the $7.5 billion paid. This strikes me as being in the millions, uh, maybe, you know, uh, single digit millions, maybe, you know, 10 million, perhaps less than 10 million. I, I, my initial thought is this would be less than a $10 million deal. Yeah, I think so. That's my impression. But uh, I mean, hey, from Sony's perspective, a, a cheap acquisition to get a very passionate or greater access to a very passionate and loyal and dedicated fan base. So that's that's got to account for something. And at least they are getting a tangible product out of this acquisition for the money they have paid for the Evo fighting series. Unlike yeah. this next topic we're going to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, we've, we've talked about this next topic several times over the years, and it blows our mind every single time that there's still people willing to put money towards it. Indeed, because there's no tangible uh, benefit to putting money towards this effort. You have nothing really to take away from it other than it still requires more money to be completed. What we are talking about now is the uh, something that parades itself as a game, but right now is just a crowdfunding machine. It is the title known as Star Citizen. Yeah, so Star Citizen, if you remember, it was... One of like the earlier Kickstarter gaming success stories, like I think they were asking for something like half a million dollars and ended up raising a couple of million dollars on Twitter, like, or not Twitter, um, on, uh, on Kickstarter. And then like, yeah, really like really super funded their goal, but then kept it going after the fact through like PayPal and their own website, basically being like, yeah, so we're going to keep the crowdfunding going. Like if you want to get in on this. Here's, you know, our thing. And like, so that's basically been their whole model for the last, what, 10 years? Almost 10 years. The, the initial crowdfunding campaign for Star Citizen on Kickstarter, uh, launched back in 2012. And, yeah. and that's when it was super funded and, and the campaign wrapped up with $6 million when the initial, oh, and the initial ask was for, you know, uh, you know, not anywhere near that. I think, you know, a couple hundred thousand, if that. So, uh, so as you pointed out, super funded back in 2012 and here we are in 2021, the year of our dark Lord and the game is still not released. It is still currently in alpha version 3.12 mm-hmm. and there's no prospect for this game being formally released anytime soon. However, in the intervening nine years uh, that have passed after the initial crowdfunding campaign wrapped up and there was that $6 million, as you said, Cloud Imperium and the people behind Star Citizen, they have kept on raising money, kept on raising money. And uh, most recently, uh, there was a milestone, a major milestone that was surpassed in the crowdfunding campaign for Star Citizen. The, the quote-unquote game has now surpassed $350 million in money raised. Yeah. So specifically they're sitting over 351 million US dollars, but you know, at this point we're not counting the dollars and cents 
Because it's over $350 million for a game that's been in beta alpha, early beta, for eight years. So apparently it uh, the game will hit uh, alpha 3.16 by the end of this year. It's yeah. in alpha 3.12 at the moment. That's that's still alpha. Yeah. And the, you know, these terms don't really mean anything. They only mean stuff to the inter- like the internal teams and stuff that are working on them. I don't know what their timeline looks like or what what transitioning from alpha to beta means. Beta would imply that the game is complete and they're just in a bug fixing phase, but I would imagine alpha is still, you know, feature development and stuff. It's possible. It's very like not very possible, but it's pos- like it's there's the outside chance that one day this game will get released and it'll be the most amazing thing in the entire world and it'll be the most in-depth crazy game that you've ever played. But at this point, all I've seen is basically just sizzle reels and I've heard nothing but people kind of like complaining that there's been no progress. So I don't understand how people are still putting money towards this unless it's some sort of an elaborate front for something. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if that's ever revealed to be a fact at some point down the line or in some reality, uh, different reality where that's revealed. I don't know. I, I don't think anyone outside of, uh, Chris Roberts or Cloud Imperium Games really have an idea of what the hell is going on. Why have they raked in so much money and why do they have so little to show compared to the money they've raked in? As as we've said, this game still does not have any sort of formal release date. It is still in alpha, fairly, I mean, early alpha. Uh, No semblance of even a beta release anytime soon. That's likely still, quote-unquote, years away. You know, five years away from being five years away, I believe, is the old axiom. (laughs) Yeah. Although, if... uh, uh, if the pace of uh, funding is to anything to go by, maybe the pace of funding is uh, slowed down a bit. Uh, the Star Citizen crowdfunding effort passed the $300 million milestone in monies raised last June, and it took them nine months to raise another $50 million. So that seems like it's a bit of a slowed pace, but uh, who the hell knows? Uh, I'm not keeping track of these things, uh, you know, Ardently, uh, that's for other people to do. However, uh, Star Citizen has raised its $350 million, over that I should say, from 3 million customers who have ships to show for it? Some, some digital assets to show for it? Yeah, well I, I don't know, like I guess just doing a little bit of quick googling, there is a Star Citizen community, so take that for a grain of salt with like, who is posting what, but like on Reddit here, like there's a star citizen subreddit and there's like this big counter argument. That's a bunch of people made here, you know, saying regarding star citizen is a scam argument. A lot of people say that, you know, the game actually is a full game that you can actually play. Just the fact that it's in alpha or whatever is that, you know, just to kind of say like, just expect some bugs. So Fine. And like, you know, there's people saying like, you know, there's lots of missions and stuff and like they get a lot of play out of it and fine. But I just don't understand. Like, like, I don't know. I have a hard time understanding the model of this is all I'm 
like it's <laughs> it doesn't seem officially released. So I don't know. It's very strange. Plus, all of like the the things on their website to me look very scammy with the the crazy expensive ships and stuff. So like thousands of dollars to get like a ship that you fly around with. Like, I don't know what you get out of that. Like, but yeah. Oh, I think we've, uh, we've talked about this before when, uh, in previous times when Star Citizen has crossed a major milestone, uh, I would not be surprised if on the part of some of these people who are contributing to the Star Citizen campaign and uh, giving their dollars, perhaps on a regular basis, uh, there's the sunk cost fallacy to it as part of their rationale. Yeah. Where, you know, well, they're in for a penny there, so they'll be in for a pound and just uh, keep throwing money at it. And that way it'll be just even closer to release or whatnot. I couldn't tell you. This is a foreign land to me. And as an outsider, it completely boggles my mind that this could have crossed $350 million in money raised and there not be any prospect of a full-fledged formal release for it. And at the same time, if you're Cloud Imperium Games... What's the rush? Yeah. Though I guess there's also the other argument, like, because I apparently like to play devil's advocate sometimes, big AAA titles do often have big budgets like $350 million. So maybe they are nearing completion. Like maybe they're finally reaching the point where they've, they've just done it over the course of eight years and over the course of like, you know, small trickle of basically being just totally independent. So when they actually do release and they do make tons of money, they'll just be super laughing because they've got, they'll be the next Epic games. Maybe who knows? Uh, uh, maybe, uh, this will, uh, is best left to time and history to judge properly as it is still ever so slowly unfolding. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a hell of a thing. I'm still boggled and mystified by it. I, and we'll talk about it again at some point when it crosses the $400 million milestone. Probably. <laughs> or will it ever reach a billion? That's a good question. Or will it be released by then? Will they need to release it by then if it reaches a billion? Like, what's the point? As I said, I mean, they seem to have the funding model all figured out, so it's not as though they, that Cloud Imperium or anyone else maybe had to borrow money or seek funding from uh, other parties to fund development of this. It's being, in theory, it's being developed as it's being funded. So yeah. you don't owe anyone, so you can kind of go at your own pace then, can't you? Yeah. Which is a wild concept and completely contrary to uh, a lot of other funding models we've seen for game development through history, really. And also good on them, I guess, theoretically, for tackling the concept of crunch. True. Yeah, there. I don't think there's any crunch whatsoever going on here. Yeah. <laughs> so if if this game is actually being developed and if it is the fun experience that people say it is, when it actually officially... Does like I am curious, but I'm not gonna buy it until it's officially actually released. You know, I am curious to check it out when it's released. And you know, I do genuinely hope that everyone who put money into it is getting whatever they want out of it. But it it looks crazy to me. Like it just seems insane to me at this point. Yeah, it's uh, I I will let the other people who are into it continue to be into it and I will stay the hell away from it. 
<laughs> yeah. That is what I will say. I and my wallet will be more than six feet away from this. <laughs> yes. I, I must maintain the safest social distance away from Star Citizen. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of big money, uh, Google, of course, has a lot of money. If they wanted to, they could, uh, you know, raise one pinky and then have all of Star Citizen funded in the blink of an eye and release it if they so wanted to, because Google is one of the uh, four or five big evil companies that dominates the business landscape these days. I thought you were going to say the world, which is also accurate. Yeah, yeah. I, I think both would be uh, accurate statements that uh, they they dominate uh, the business landscape, they dom- which in turn is the world because business makes the world turn. Business dictates politics and politics uh, dictates the world. So, yeah, yeah, uh, it, it, true. But Google, they are one of the biggest and baddest on the planet. I mean, there's others that are bigger, others that are badder, but, you know, whatever. They're doing it in their own way. And they are actually following uh, a bit in the footsteps of Apple in that they are they've made an announcement that they are planning to reduce the uh, the Google tax slash App Store tax that they collect on any sort of transaction that is conducted in their Google Play marketplace. Yeah, I mean, maybe as a direct result of the stuff surrounding Epic Games and that whole uh Craziness that they started by taking these behemoths on? Entirely possible. Uh, now, Google being a bit slower to come to this, Apple uh, took the first step towards this, uh, I think, last fall with the official uh, change in policy being enacted on January 1st of this year when they cut their 30% take down to 15% and Google is going to be doing the same. However, their change in policy will take hold on July 1st, where any developer or publisher who launch an app on Google Play will only have to pay or hand over 15% of their revenue so long as their revenue for that year stays below a million dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that's a good model. And according to uh, the the, I guess, you know, patting itself on the back type blog post that Google put out for this, uh, apparently this will affect about, eh, will reduce the fees by half for about 99% of the developers on the Google Play Store. So after the uh, developers uh, have revenue or a development studio has revenue that goes over a million dollars, then it's back up to that 30% threshold. Yeah. AKA the Google tax, the Apple tax, the you're using our platform tax, the eh, because we can tax. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Google then went on to say that uh, reducing these fees for develop- developers earning less than a million dollars aims to give those teams access to cash needed to scale up what it calls a quote uh, to a quote critical phase of their growth end quote. So this is similar to uh, the language that Apple used in their press release from last fall when they announced this change in policy where they said it was for the good of business and the good of smaller businesses to uh, give them more cash and uh, make them more sustainable in the long run, yada, yada, yada. We're doing good by the small business. We're not big and evil and corporate, yada, yada, yada. Uh, don't file antitrust lawsuits against us. Yeah. I think, yeah, there, the one difference here, though, is that, uh, to be clear, Google's plan is that this 
their, the limit resets every year. So like Apple looks at the previous year and decreases the fee from 30% to 15% only if the previous year saw less than $1 million in revenue. However, Google's plan just resets every single year. No questions asked. Basically being like, if they turn, if they hit a million dollars in 2021, uh, you know, in 2022, if they, you know, like they'll still start with at the back at the 15% for their first million dollars. So like, even if they, yeah. So yeah. Anyways, you get what I'm, you get what I'm trying to say. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, if you want to read these, uh, read the blog post where Google pats itself on its back. We link to it on our webpage, thearcadeshow.com and make your own judgments about Apple or Google's reasoning for this. Uh, whether or not you buy it that it's, you know, really in the good interest of, uh, of smaller developers and smaller companies, that sort of thing. Or if they're just really trying to avoid antitrust legislation. <laughs> I mean, Hey, good luck. And, and this is uh, their part, their effort to uh, uh, incur some goodwill and build up some goodwill from legislators, uh, the general population, that sort of thing. You know, because, yeah, uh, I mean, Epic Games is suing Apple, but also I, I it seems like, you know, the part we never talk about is the fact that I think Google was entangled in that as well, but they haven't been as provocatory in the to and fro as Apple has been. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, that is that. And of course, the Epic Games and Apple lawsuit will go to trial in May. Uh, that will be, I believe May 3rd is the official date I read. Uh, I have the details somewhere, but it will be an in-person trial. So that will, uh, play itself out and actually have big consequences for things like the App Store and the Google Play Marketplace and, uh, other platforms that are I guess console or holder specific, like, you know, the PlayStation store, the Xbox store and the, you know, Nintendo eShop. Yeah. So we'll see how that all plays itself out on the down the line in the future. But, uh, one last news item to get to here and let's, uh, close off uh, the news portion of this program with some actual gaming news as opposed to all business related shenanigans. Uh, a surprising game announcement uh, came out uh, several days ago. Uh, a return for a, an old beloved franchise to an old beloved format. Uh, there's going to be a new Turtles beat em up game. Yeah, very, uh, very cool. Uh, Dot Emu is the ones, or are the one, uh, is the publisher handling the whole thing, basically. So it's a new game that was released in like classic Turtles fashion with like basically an updated version of the classic late 80s, early 90s cartoon, uh, theme song, actually sung by Mike Patton from what I understand. Oh yeah, uh, from, uh, what, Faith No More? Faith No More, Phantomus, Mr. Bungle, Tomahawk, uh, and a f- number of other different wacky projects. But anyways, yeah, so he was the one who sang it, so it, it was really cool, but yeah, it, uh, it's basically a four-player co-op beat-em-up in the classic Konami style that, you know, people of our age range might have remembered from, you know, back in the day, either in the arcades or when you were playing, you know, well, two player on the NES way back, you know, in like the nineties with like the first three and oh, I guess fourth as well. Turtles games on the original Nintendo entertainment system, as well as on the super Nintendo entertainment system. 
Yes, on the uh, Super Nintendo, it was uh, Turtles in Time. Yes, whereas the first three, you know, there was like the classic Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and then the second one, which is arguably the best one, maybe the you know TMNT two, the arcade game, which is what this is really. I I consider this is like the one that's channel- channeling maybe the most, um, as well as the third one, the Manhattan Project. But uh, yeah. Yes, I mean, ultimately, Manhattan Project and Turtles in Time were all kind of sequels and, and channeling the first Art Turtles arcade game. So I can see, I, I will accept this as very much being in that vein of the original arcade game. This title is simply called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, and it is done using the art style and look of the turtles from the original 80s slash 90s cartoon series. Yeah, exactly. It is hitting every nostalgia button possible. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how familiar people, younger people are with various Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles stuff now, but for us, I would say anyone who is in our age range would have saw this and would have went, oh man, I have to play this game. Like, has everyone there? Like, has, you know, all of the turtles, you see the Foot Clan, you see Bebop and Rocksteady, you saw Krang, I think, for a second in there, and like, you know, Shredder, and there's mention of Dimension X, probably, I would imagine. So, it's all, it's all gonna be there. It, it absolutely will all be there. Uh, now there's no word yet on, uh, when this is going to come out, or what this is going to come out for. This was, uh, really just an announcement that this is a project in development, with a, uh, snazzy trailer to get everyone rocking and juiced up and jazzed for it, which I think it did a good job of doing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, other, one other thing to note is that, uh, uh, the developer of this, now, you said Dot Emu are the publishers, they've been doing some, some nostalgia heavy, uh, or publishing some nostalgic, uh, centric games in the past several years. They were the publishers of Streets of Rage 4, Windjammers 2, and Wonder Boy the Dragon Strap, but, uh, Tribute Games are the actual development studio of this. And they've had people who've previously worked on Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which was another four-player beat-em-up game, uh, and also worked on TMNT, which was the uh, game, I guess, uh, uh, game spinoff for the uh, CG animated movie that seems to have been lost to time that was simply called TMNT. It came out uh, between the end of the Fox animated series and the start of the Nickelodeon series. Yeah. And they did the game adaptation of that. So, uh, there's a whole blurb that is just nostalgic heavy that describes the story of the game, quote, uh, with Bebop and Rocksteady amassing gizmos to support Krang and Shredder's latest scheme, Teenage Mutant Ninja, Tur- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge finds the turtles battling through a breathless tour of iconic TMNT locations to thwart their nemesis most diabolical plan yet. Armed with shell-shocking new abilities built on a foundation of classic brawling mechanics, the gang are in for an exhilarating, foot-clan-stomping romp leading them through the sewers and bustling burrows of New York City all the way to Dimension X. <laughs> so, I... Yes, yes, very much channeling Old Turtles, the classic cartoon series, right there. It is the art style. It is the classic theme with, as you pointed out, new rendition done by Mike Patton, who I wouldn't have guessed, nor would I have realized that was his voice singing. Yeah. But, I mean, cool it was. Absolutely. Just like an, 
Just an added bonus, I'd say. Absolutely an added bonus. So this is uh, something to get jazzed and excited about. Uh, we don't know, again, when it's coming out. We don't know what platform it's coming out for, though I would imagine it's going to be available on everything. Yeah. Call me crazy, but uh yeah, new Turtles beat 'em up that actually looks like it's going to be very good with technology that can handle it because uh uh I mean the original Turtles arcade game, as nostalgic as we might be for it, um was limited by the technology of what it could do and how it could look and what it could handle at the time. Well yeah, I mean like that that's always been sort of the problem with video games, but in the last well ten years that's that limitation is gone. So it's kind of, you know, surprising that we haven't seen more fantastic. Well, I mean, I don't want to say we haven't seen more fantastical kind of things. We've seen a lot of crazy stuff happen in video games now and things are getting more down the lines of, you know, realism. But in terms of just like features and like, you know, amount of just stuff crammed into games, a game like this has every possibility to sort of basically be the definitive Ninja Turtles game, I would say. I am inclined to agree with that. So, uh, hopefully it, uh, turns out as, as well and good as it is looking in this first trailer. Uh, we'll bring you updates on it as it progresses. If there's any sort of announcement of a release date, platforms, any of that, uh, discussion we'll bring to you in the weeks and months ahead. But for now, we will take this opportunity to take some time to check out uh, some things and recommend some things to try for this is now the Blast from the Past, the portion of the show where we like to celebrate some pieces of entertainment that are marking milestone anniversaries. We have two items for you this week. Uh, one is a game, one is a movie, and normally I w- at this juncture, I would ask you uh, where should we start this week, but I'm pretty sure I know where we should start this week. Well, yeah, I mean, we were just talking about Ninja Turtles, so why wouldn't we keep talking about Ninja Turtles? Uh, I, I cannot fault that logic, so in, so we will take this f- initial opportunity to talk about a Turtles movie that was released on March 22nd, 1991. This is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Yeah, so I can't, I can't understate how omnipresent the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were in the early 90s. Like, it was like literally, if you were a kid in the early 90s, you probably loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, boys more than girls, but like, still, like, even if you ask people our age, like, there's gonna be, you know, women now that like, go, yeah, oh yeah, obviously Ninja Turtles was around, and like, they probably had some level of fondness for it, even if it's just a in a nostalgic way, but they were everywhere. And what's interesting about that time compared to, I guess the current time is the media landscape was a lot more condensed, not as fractured as it is now. So it was easier for there to be one property, one title that could dominate pop culture at that time. And turtles did for several years. Yeah. Like probably a good seven years, I would say maybe it was what it felt like. Uh, I think so. I think, uh, there was probably six or seven years where, uh, the Ninja Turtles line of toys was the most popular and the best selling line of toys, uh, I think worldwide only to take a dip once uh, Power Rangers came out. Yeah. But in that time, of course, there was the toy line 
And the animated series was really to sell and get people interested in the property to then sell the toys. But with the popularity, along came spin, uh, you know, spinoffs and ventures into other things like movies. Yeah. So the first movie came out in 1990. You know, I often like telling the story because I think it's cool. It was the first movie I ever saw in the theater. Like I was six years old in 1990 when it came out and, uh, yeah, I was the perfect age to see that movie. And yeah, it was the first movie I saw. It was awesome. It was like a super hype experience, I believe you could say, to use language that I think the kids use now. <laughs> but uh yeah, it was awesome. And when I heard that there was going to be a second Ninja Turtles movie, I remember thinking it was awesome. I didn't see that one in the theater, but I do definitely remember the first time I saw it. I think one of my cousins had it on VHS and I borrowed it. We watched it and I was like the whole time it was just like glued to the TV and it was just, just awesome. It was just like, oh, more Ninja Turtles. Anytime there's more Ninja Turtle stuff, obviously I was interested. Like I was a huge fan, just like I'm sure, well, you were as well. And I'm just, everyone who is of our age was a big fan of the Ninja Turtles. It was just like, if you weren't, what the hell was wrong with you? Why not? Absolutely. I mean, you had, you watched the cartoon, you had the toys, you had a favorite Ninja Turtle, you probably had Ninja Turtles branded clothing, maybe mm-hmm. you had Ninja Turtles branded snacks or, or breakfast cereals or this, that, or the other thing. You know, when you were into it, you were all into it. You probably had Ninja Turtles socks, Ninja Turtles shoes. I, I mean, there was no end to the Ninja Turtles themes product, themed products you could get at the time. And, like you, I believe the first Turtles movie was my first movie-going experience. Uh, not initially, because, or not for the first several weeks it was out, because it was very hard to get into theaters to see it. Oh, yeah, that's another thing I remembered about it. Like, I remember we had to wait in line for, like, probably an hour just to go buy tickets. It was crazy. Like, it was bananas. <laughs> no, and And we had to go to a different theater because they sold out. It was insane. Like now, like I just, it just popped into my head. This this one random memory that I had. It's like no, no. After you mentioned that, it was crazy. Like it was a bananas experience. Like so, it maybe it was just everything together that like I just had this whole thing in my head where it's like no, like this was was cool. It was like the first time I saw a movie, and it was like all this excitement surrounding it. Obviously, not every movie experience was like that, but I think it just sort of set up this weird level of excitement in my head that you know. Obviously couldn't be topped, but it was like a good first introduction into movies. So yeah, I don't know. Anyways, yeah, it was super popular. It was crazy popular. Like we can't really understate that. So that first movie, as you said, was crazy popular, but compared to the source material that, or really not the source material because the source material is uh, uh, a pulp underground uh, cult niche comic book series. But compared to the cartoon series and the toy line, which were very bright, very cartoony, very Saturday morning cartoony, the first movie was really dark and took more hues for, uh, and cues from the comic series. Then comes the uh, the sequel, Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, because the first one's so popular. Of course, they're doing a second one and just turning around and banging it out right quick. Uh, the second movie seemed to be more in line uh, visually, stylistically with the cartoon series. Yeah, very slapstick, a lot more kind of like wackiness going on, even in the fight sequences, which were still also very well choreographed, but a lot wackier, a lot more sound effects, a lot, you know, 
there's a lot more silliness happening in the second one, which was still fine. I mean, as a kid, you don't like as an adult going back, looking at, you know, the Ninja Turtles movies, I still think the first one is the best. And the second one is okay. And the third one's trash. We're not even, like, even whenever it comes up, like we'll probably talk about it when it comes up as in some sort of anniversary, but We'll just straight up say now it's trash. The third one sucks. Yeah, it was not good. It was not well done. And at that point in time, too, the Turtles franchise was waning in popularity. It was long in the tooth and uh, just people and, and pop culture were moving on from it. But Turtles 2 was very much still in the prime heyday of Turtles mania. Yeah, exactly. So in this one, in Turtles 2, as you mentioned, it's it's... It's different tonally, stylistically. It's a lot more light. It's a lot more lighthearted. It's a lot brighter visually. And this is uh, this is a comment you and I have made about the first Turtles movie. It's dark. Yeah, it's dark. Like you're, it, there's something about it that just like it feels like it feels like it's really like there's something strangely like New York about it too. Where like when you think of like New York or a big city like that when people are just kind of like going down back alleys, there's like almost like a, a level of like dusk at all times. Like when you're just sort of in a big city and there's big buildings around kind of obscuring sunlight and things like that, they kind of captured a lot of that in the first movie, but that wasn't really there in the second one as much. Like it's a lot more open and like the outside shots are more, you know, in parks and things like that more in the middle of the day. And you see, you know, like the, there's a lot more cartoonish aspects because I guess they really get more into the ooze and they introduce more mutants and like, you know, they're more ridiculous. And it really felt more like where the TV show went than, you know, the initial comic book. You're right. Like, oh, very much yeah. so. I think the opening scene in uh, Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze is when the human character, the the pizza guy, pizza delivery guy, uh, Kino, uh, goes to deliver a pizza and he walks into I think a shopping mall where, or a store where the turtles are fighting the foot clan and he's just kind of in the middle of it, uh, you know, accidentally in the middle of it. But like the set piece is bright. It's like very like late eighties, early nineties with, uh, with some neon going on, like some off white paint on the walls and also looks very cheaply done. This is one thing you notice too. If you watch through the, the trilogy of the first turtles movies, the production values get less and less as they go on. Oh yeah. Like, like I, I you know, I don't want to necessarily like talk about another property necessarily so much, especially when it's kind of inconsistent in uh, their quality, but the angry video game nerd had a video about this like years ago where he shows kind of like the steady decline, like the animatronics and details and stuff that went into the Ninja Turtles for the first movie were really good. Like the facial expressions are all really good. Like the Jim Henson, um, creature shop was really involved really well in the first one. The second one, they were pretty good as well. Not as, like, I would say not as good as the first one, but still not too bad. Uh, still pretty good. But then the third one, I don't even know if the Jim Henson creature shop. No, again, just confirming this on Wikipedia. No, they were not involved. There is the the creature effects were provided by another company called All Effects Company, and it really shows like the mouth movements and stuff. Like when you look at a person's mouth when they're talking, there's certain subtleties that go into speech. <laughs> and the Jim Henson Creature Shop 
really kind of has a lot of that stuff nailed. Like they do a really good job with their, like, cause it's like real world practical animation in a way. Like it's the difference between, you know, like good puppeteering. Like when you look at good puppeteering, like it's not just literally like open and close the mouth for every single syllable. Like that, that's going to look like a crappy puppet. So that, but that's what the third one looks like. It's like crappy puppets where the mouth is opening and closing for every single syllable, but that's not how a human mouth works. Like it doesn't open and close for every single syllable you say. And like, just even like little details like that were just lost between the second and third movies. And what's strange to me now, just looking at the, uh, and comparing, uh, the first and second movies on Wikipedia, first movie had a budget of $13.5 million. Uh, and it looked really good. I mean, yeah. Now part of that is probably shooting at nighttime and in darkness to hide a lot of deficiencies, uh, even so, the second movie had a budget of $25 million, so almost twice as much as the first movie, and the second one looks objectively worse than the first movie. Yeah. Which, which that being said, it's not, there's not a, a, an order of magnitude in difference, but it is something you do notice. Uh, and strangely, even though this second movie was very much taking cues and hues from the, the cartoon series. No Bebop, no Rocksteady, although there was still Shredder. Yeah. But there were two other new villains, Toka and Razor, used in this as as the big monsters that the Turtles fight. But it, uh, I mean, if you were a kid, still strange to me, looking back on it 30 years later, no Bebop, no Rocksteady. Yeah. Like, if I, as a kid, that was something that did kind of bother me about the second one that I was kind of like a little bit disappointed that there was no Bebop and Rocksteady in the movie. And I'd never understood why they had to introduce these new characters that I didn't ever see before and didn't really care about. Cause you know, it's like, but do you already have Bebop and Rocksteady? They're already designed. Like, do you just have a hard time implementing them as puppets or something? Like what? It, yeah. it was always curious to me, uh, unless uh, Bebop and Rocksteady were just uh, creations for the cartoon series and the licensing was done maybe from derived from the uh, original comic series. That's the only thing I can think of here in this moment, but Toka and Razor being like a, a wolf and snapping turtle that were mutated with the same mutagen uh, that made the turtles the turtles. And then they are just the big lumbering monsters with no personalities. Yeah. Oh, also, this is the movie where Vanilla Ice was made an appearance and gave us the turtle rap. Or, sorry, the ninja rap. Yes. I think towards the very end of the movie, he makes a cameo appearance to be violently 90s about things. Yep. And appeared as the turtles crash uh, into a, a venue where he's performing on stage and suddenly he breaks into the ninja rap. Yeah, that whole go ninja, go ninja, go. <laughs> Which is maybe the most violently 90s thing you can possibly think of in hindsight. It's up there. All it needs is someone wearing neon, uh, some sort of neon colored clothing, and it would be like the pinnacle of 90s right there. I'm pretty sure Vanilla Ice's backup dancers in the whole sequence were wearing neon. Huh. Interesting. From what I remember, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen the second Ninja Turtles movie, so I, I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty sure like 
Unless I'm misremembering, there was some neon present. Well, if you're uh, you're speaking with conviction about uh, Vanilla Ice's backup dancers from that one scene in a uh, movie 30 years ago, so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, even if I'm wrong, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an entertaining watch. All this being said, uh, it's still an entertaining watch, and it's an int- it's an entertaining little time capsule of 90s nostalgia. Yeah, it's not as good as the first one. It's way better than the third one. It's still worth watching. Absolutely. My, you know, in my ranking of uh, the Turtle movies released thus far, uh, I'd put the first original live action movie at the top of the list. And then I would slot in the, uh, the CG movie. And then I'd put Turtles 3 or Turtles 2, I should say. Yeah. The CG movie, uh, you know, a lot better than, you know, I think people give it credit for. Yeah, I think part of uh, the fact is there was no cartoon series at the time, so it was just kind of in a no-man's land for the Turtles franchise. But uh, that being said, too, Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze, an entertaining watch. Um, if you haven't and you want to go on a Turtles kick, you're certainly free to. There's uh, you know different ways and avenues you can watch it. It's probably on a streaming service of some nature, some description already. Um and and go ahead and watch it uh, and enjoy it or just sit there and ridicule it the whole time. That is entirely your choice as well. Oh, also, uh, I have to point out here that uh, one fact about this movie that blew my mind years later is that in the very end of the movie, when Shredder takes the mutagen and then becomes uh, the mutated version of himself known as Super Shredder, uh, that is played by Kevin Nash, who <laughs> would later be known in wrestling circles as Diesel. Yep. And then go on to be Kevin Nash, one half of the Outsiders, form the NWO, that kind of thing. Yes, but yes. Yeah. Also, uh, my apologies to the actor David Warner, who played the uh, scientist for the TGRI company in this. Uh, anytime I see him in anything, I always recognize him as the scientist from Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. <laughs> yes. Well, because, you know, he, anyone who's in some sort of movie that you watch a lot when you're a child – is going to unfortunately just be that person. Like anytime I see Elias Coteus, I'm like, Hey, it's Casey Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Even if he's like playing a violent psychopath in something, I'm like, no, it's Casey Jones though. Hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> oh yeah. That's another thing. There was, there was no Casey Jones in turtles too. Yeah. But there was Casey Jones in the third one, which is bizarre. And maybe the only good thing about the third movie <laughs> So, uh, a mixed bag that is Turtles 2. Uh, I think we've said enough about it for you to make your own determination. Also, it's 30 years old, so if you haven't watched it or made or formed an opinion on it uh, by this point, well, uh, uh, there you go. We've filled in the gap for you. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, but moving on to something that is not 30 years old, and instead a paltry 15 years old. <laughs> half the age. Uh, it is half the age. Why... Starting next year, it'll be able to get its driver's license. Uh, this is a game that was released for the uh, PC and Xbox 360 platforms on March 28th, 2006. This is the fourth game in this popular franchise. It is Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion. Yeah. So um, before there was Skyrim and after there was Morrowind, there was Oblivion. So the the fourth in the Elder Scrolls franchise... Uh, yeah. I mean, if you've played an Elder Scrolls game, it's, it's kind of exactly what you would expect if you've never played it before. 
I mean, there's people that like this game more. I've, I've met people that like this game more than Skyrim. Um, I don't like it more than Skyrim. I like it, but it's, uh, it's got its own series of quirks. It's, uh, it's, for the time it came out, it was kind of mind blowing. It was huge. Like there's tons and tons of stuff in the game, tons of places to go, tons of, tons of dialogue, even though there wasn't that many voice actors, you know, there's just kind of a limited voice cast, but, um, tons of lines of dialogue, lots of quests. And yeah, very, very interesting game. Uh, and also right at the start of the game, it pulls some surprising star power because there's cameos. Well, not even cameos. It's just for a very short amount of time, Patrick Stewart is in the game as well as Sean Bean. Interesting. Yeah. So Patrick Stewart plays, you know, it's not a spoiler because it happens within the first like 10 minutes of the game, but he plays uh Uriel Septim the third, I believe, who is a king that ends up kind of getting ambushed and dies in your presence. So while you're sort of like a prisoner who's being oh, basically on death row, essentially, but like you, like they need to go through your cell because your cell, as you discover, has some sort of like hidden pathway for the king to kind of quickly escape out of. And then you end up going with them <laughs> because, you know, I guess it's like better to let you come along. No questions asked than whatever. Anyways, whatever the case. So, you get ambushed, blah, 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 and then you later on find out that Sean Bean is, like, also supposed to be the rightful heir and didn't know this, and, yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's uh not a lot of Patrick Stewart and Sean Bean, as one of my friends actually put it, like, a disappointing amount of both. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh yeah, it's... It's a good game. It's got some interesting ideas. Like there's like basically gates to hell that open up at some point. And if you just kind of ignore them, there becomes a overwhelming amount of gates of gates to hell. <laughs> um, and there's lots of like post end game stuff you can do as well. And like there's, this is basically a game that I think is where the whole side quest thing started to become out of control. <laughs> Where there was almost a bewildering amount of side quests? Yes. Where um, your game experience could be almost exclusively doing side quests? Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, like, that's also technically true from what I remember of Morrowind and definitely also true from what I remember of Skyrim, both of which I also put a lot of time into. But, yeah, it's uh it's different, but it's good. And I do think it's aged okay, like graphically it's not as impressive as you know even Skyrim was which is now also 10 years old but it's still it's still a fun game like it's not doesn't feel too broken it doesn't feel too out of control there are things that i don't like about the leveling system like if you do if you do go into play it um make sure that your you know like if you're going to level stuff up like if if you level your character up enemies level to you. So if you don't have useful class-based skills, so like if you just basically make a bunch of garbage that doesn't matter, like acrobatics and like, you know, sneaking and stuff, like part of your leveling experience, you're going to be in for a bad time. 
I, I totally screwed myself over the first time I played this game and I had to restart because it became impossible. Like I, I, I thought I was being sneaky, being like, oh wow, like there's level requirements for certain quests. So I could just like basically level myself up using BS skills and then I'll be able to do these quests really easily. Uh, no, that's not the case. I level myself up ridiculously using BS skills like, like acrobatics and, um, I think illusion and things like that were, that were just basically easy to spam, like acrobatics and stuff was basically just jumping up and down while you ran and running. Like there was athletics and acrobatics. That's right. There was two different skills. One was running and one was jumping and stuff. So things like that, that you were just sort of like going to be leveling up anyways. And then as I got up to like some sort of level, like 10 or something, I was getting one shot killed by mud crabs, which was like, Oh, this is not good. <laughs> I literally can't kill anything because their defense is crazy. And my attack is nothing. My attack is like level one and I'm at like level 10. This is bad. I'm going to restart. So kind of had to put a little bit of time into rejigging that a little bit. But, um, yeah, once you figure that out, it's actually pretty enjoyable. And there's like some interesting intrigue in there. Though this game is where they kind of introduced some of their more, like, I think they, like, I want to call it Radiant Quests, but I think they firmed that thing up more in Skyrim. But in this one, there's, like, some funny AI that sometimes happens between um, a lot of the NPCs, which if if you just search Google for Oblivion uh, NPC conversation, like, there's, you'll find you'll find two things in YouTube. You'll find, you know, like actual real life (laughs) people shooting really cringy conversations in real life and putting oblivion music in the background, calling it oblivion NBC con like conversation. (laughs) But then you'll also see like real oblivion NPC conversation. Look for the real oblivion NPC conversation. If you're not familiar with it, because it's, it's funny. You'll see like, you'll hear weird tone shifts and stuff where it's just clearly like the engine doesn't really know exactly how to resolve a conversation properly. So it'll just pick weird things <laughs> to resolve a conversation. It'll be like, get out of my face. Have a nice day. <laughs> and then they'll both walk. It's like, what? <laughs> and it's, you'll hear like the same voice talking to each other. And then partway through, it'll change to a different voice. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, so it kind of sounded like there was ambition on the part of the, development team, but perhaps the technology and systems just weren't in place to fully execute. No, like not, not fully yet, but you know, this was 15 years ago. So they have come a long way with their engines and stuff. And arguably Skyrim was way better. And I'm super excited to see what they come up with for, you know, Elder Scrolls six, whenever that is. But uh, yeah, also interesting to note that there was a five year gap between Elder Scrolls four and five. And there's currently about a nine or 10 year gap between Elder Scrolls five and six. So yeah. So what I'm reading into what you're saying is you're wondering what the hell, why so long? Yep. And you want Elder Scrolls six yesterday? Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted it five years ago. Fair enough. I don't think you're alone in that, uh, in that desire, in that want. So, uh, but it seemed my re- recollection of that time 15 years ago is, uh, with Elder Scrolls for Oblivion is this was kind of the game that really, 
uh, cemented Elder Scrolls as a popular, you know, fantasy RPG title. Yeah, and it also really, I would say, is like this in concert with you know when like Fallout Three when it came out, um, a little bit later, both really helped kind of cement the whole open world game genre as a thing that people would really want to be into because. I don't really remember big, crazy open world games that had this level of scope in terms of like where you can go in the world. Like there was always like Grand Theft Auto and, you know, games of that like where, you know, it was open world, but like there were definite confines to where you could go. Whereas Oblivion, like it could take you like two hours to walk from one side of the map to the other. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, well, maybe not two hours. Like, let's say half an hour, 45 minutes. But mm-hmm. still, that's still a long amount of time. It, yes, yes, it is. Perhaps uh, longer than it should be for to have a fun and pleasant game experience, to my mind, at least. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's – there's also, like, almost like a meditative aspect to the whole exploration in the game, too, which, you know, there, there's different – type of value in there as well but uh yeah and true enough so if you want to go back and revisit it uh dig out your xbox 360 or old pc as uh elder scrolls for oblivion came out march 20th 2006 for those platforms or if you just want to go back even further and have even more 90s nostalgia injected into your veins, well, this is uh, basically a speedball for that. Uh, Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, the movie, the second Turtles movie, came out March 22nd, 1991. Uh, yes, it is a whole lot of 90s nostalgia just right there, all in one package. That's why I said it's basically a speedball of 90s nostalgia. Yeah. It might seem like an aggressive way of framing it, uh, but I'm not uh, backing down from that. I'm quite comfortable with how I uh, described it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, very fair. Thank you. But if you are out there and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the second Turtles movie more so than the first, I mean, obviously more than the third, that goes without saying, uh, let us know your thoughts on that. Uh, did you also enjoy and have nostalgic feelings for Elder Scrolls for Oblivion? Or perhaps you have other words to share with us on anything else we mentioned on this program or this particular episode of the arcade. You can let us know uh, right in the long form. Go for it. Why not? More so than just uh, sending a simple text, a tweet, or Facebook message, you can email us, info at thearcadeshow.com, or perhaps you just don't have the time, and there's only so much you can do when you're sitting on the toilet. We understand, so you can uh, follow us on Twitter, send us a tweet, we are at The Arcade Show, and like our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. And if you have uh, questions or need reference material for anything mentioned and discussed on this program, we have links to uh, to posts and news items for everything we talked about on this particular episode on our homepage of the, or for the post of the show on the arcade show.com. And if you haven't done so already, I think you are long overdue to treat yourself, do some self care by subscribing to our program on both iTunes and Google play podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of the arcade show.com. So that about wraps us up for this particular edition of the Arcade, and we thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and we hope you can join us all again next time. So until then, good night, everybody. 
Good night.